Welcome to a question and answer edition of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in and thank you for all of you who put out questions for me to answer for today's show. Every 10 to 20 episodes or so, I'll do one of these question and answers. I usually put out questions on Instagram or Instagram stories, occasionally other channels. So again, I appreciate everyone who put out a question and I'm looking forward to getting to them today. We have three sponsors for today's show, Strength Coach Pro, Lost Empire Herbs, and the Elastic Essentials online course. So before we get started, I want to talk to you about these three sponsors. Strength Coach Pro first is a digital training platform. It is designed to help strength coaches and personal trainers create and distribute programs in the gym and the online space. So if you're looking for a training portal for you to write and distribute uh, workouts and training programs to your athlete, Strength Coach Pro is something you absolutely want to check out. It's designed by a coach for coaches. There are no recurring fees, so you pay one fee and get lifetime access, and you can check that out at strengthcoachpro.com. Second, we have Lost Empire Herbs. Lost Empire Herbs has been with us for a few years now. Absolutely love the company, their products, and I'm continually blown away by finding the answers in nature to supplementation. It's really interesting when you've been used to things you get in a can that you get that are um, relatively processed in nature. There's a large ingredient list. And when you switch out that and get into something that grew in the ground, that has a very specific function for your body to improve your health, energy, and well-being. It is a paradigm shift. It's been something that's been really helpful and effective for me in energy, strength, vitality, and I can't recommend them enough. I started with the Phoenix formula years ago. I was blown away. I just felt like my not only was my energy and my reliance on coffee decreased, and I wasn't expecting this, but I noticed that my strength was very positively affected and impacted by that. And there's so much out there with herbalism that I think is really making a positive change and impact in the world of nutrition and supplementation. So check out our sponsor, LostEmpireHerbs.com. You can get 15% off your order. If you go to LostEmpireHerbs.com slash JustFly, and there's also an offer to dip your toe in the water get a free sample of pine pollen, which is one of the key ingredients in that Phoenix formula and one of their flagship products. And to get a pine pollen free for just the cost of shipping, which is a very modest charge, head to justflypinepollen.com. Last sponsor before we get started with the questions is the Elastic Essentials online course. I do like to mention this course every now and then. I am so proud of it. I put it out about a year and a half ago, maybe a little bit less than that. And that course was the product of my time as an NCAA track coach, strength coach, writing well over 100 or just in the three figures or three digits of programs online, just carefully considering what athletes and clients and individuals needed. And also just really integrating the information that I've learned from so many mentors, coaches on this podcast. And as I've put things together over the years, it has landed in that course. So if you're really curious as to the nuts and bolts of my training system, the way I see training, you can check out the Elastic Essentials course by heading to justflysports.com and click on the banner. On the right, the blue banner, Elastic Essentials. It's also worth CEUs for major certifying bodies in strength and conditioning, such as the NSCA and others. So let's get started with the questions. And we'll start with DOSBOSS15 asks, how do you get the CNS or the central nervous system to adapt to fire faster. 
This is a great question because when we think of explosive athletes or explosive feats of athleticism, sprinting, jumping, throwing, I think it's easy to and it's important to think of muscular properties, fast twitch muscle, but the nervous system is also a critical element. And athletes who are explosive and fast are oftentimes called or considered wired, or air quotes, wired. And the speed of the nervous system, uh, the neural firing rate is a big deal when it comes to those things. And when we get into the nervous system itself, it is interesting because there are some things in the body related to speed and power that we can absolutely improve. We can improve the cross-sectional area of fast-twitch muscle fiber through the correct training. We may not be able to really change over our, our slow twitch into fast twitch. There's, there's some research there that might suggest that some crossover is possible. But in general, if you're a big-time slow twitch athlete, a marathon-type athlete, you're not going to become a fast twitch powerhouse by proportion. However, you can create a greater selective size increase of the fast twitch fibers you have. Uh, Werner Gunther, the shot putter, was a really big example of that through, the, through proper training. Uh, but muscle physiology aside and looking at the nervous system, there are nervous system adaptations that we uh, can induce through good training. We can recruit a larger proportion of the muscle fibers available to us by downregulating some of the protective mechanisms of the body, like the Golgi tendon organ that senses how fast the tendon is stretching and that would typically be a safety mechanism. Uh, it's been purported as one of the main benefits of plyometric training that that training helps to downregulate some of those safety mechanisms and but I, I believe that has to come in tandem with the tissues also getting stronger and more stimulated as well. I think that a lot of adaptations are multifactorial. You have the software adaptations as well as the hardware adaptations and they, they come up together. Uh, so you have uh, the inter and intramuscular coordination, the way that muscles coordinate and the way the nervous system coordinates muscles. But outside of those things, we have something that is very interesting with the nervous system, which I would just call, and I've seen this uh, that at, attempted to be defined in books like the, the greatest sports training book ever, that elusive book with the pen name D.B. Hammer. There was a, a chart in that book, I believe, talking about different ways, different types of nervous system speeds and firings that led to an ultimate output. But I, I look at something that I would just call raw firing rate. And you can get that by just doing a spacebar tapping test. So if I, there's, I don't know if the program's still available anymore. It was called the Press the Spacebar 2000. Uh, back when I was at UC Berkeley, I had a lot of athletes do it because I was just interested in it. And even back when I was coaching track at Wilmington College, I had athletes do this Press the Spacebar test. You would get five seconds to press the spacebar uh, with one finger or two. You couldn't like alternate fingers. It had to be like kind of a one finger tap type thing. And you would see how many taps you could get in five seconds. And what I found was that um, not always, it wasn't exact in one-to-one -one, as things are multifactorial, but generally speaking, the more explosive athletes, the faster athletes tended to get higher scores. The best athletes getting 50 to I think 56 or 57 was the record. And some of the more like endurance, like I tested distance swimmers, distance track and field runners, and some of the slower scores were like the 10K type runners. I think that was um, the slowest might have been like 36. So the slower, the more endurance oriented folk were down in the 30s, maybe low 40s. And the really fast people were in the mid 50s. But you did have some crossover. I had um, an 800 runner who got like 51 or 52, for example. I had a distance swimmer who was getting maybe 46 or something like that. So 
you occasionally get a little bit of crossover. And I think it's not, it is not the end all be all, but I, I did find it interesting. The highest score I ever saw on that was actually an Olympic gold medalist in the 50 meter freestyle, an athlete who was the oldest ever athlete to win the 50 freestyle at the Olympics. So that firing rate, I'm sure, was helping him to be able to do the things he needed to do in the water. And the thing with that is, is that that score you get, and again, I think it does route through a few things. I think if your, um, maybe you could say the muscles in your arm, your bicep or your forearm or your fingers are, are tight or something or not functioning well. I mean, you could do the same test with your foot or something. You could tap with your toe as fast as you can. But generally speaking, that rate, that raw rate of delivery from, of impulse from the brain to the limb is relatively fixed. Uh, what I mean by that is I could take that distance runner and I could have them specifically train that tap test over and over and over and over again. And that distance runner or that slower athlete who is at 37, 38, they're never going to get to 50. And I hate to say never. <laughs> I've been in this industry long enough that I don't, I don't like saying never. I don't like the connotations that come with that. But as strongly as I can put it, you are pretty fixed in what you have. It does fluctuate based off your state though. So if I'm in a good, if it's a good day, and I've uh, read about folks like Dan John uh, talking about this as a, you can measure and see where your nervous system is at on the day, similar to a grip test in many ways. So you can on the day do your tap test. And if at, like for me, for example, I'm actually a little bit um, compared to people who have done uh, more of the power type track events. I mean, high jump was the one I was the most successful at, uh, more so than the sprints when I was in college. But I found that I'm I'm about 42, 41, 42 on that test, where a lot of the fast sprinters I had uh, tested were in the upper 40s. And on a good day, I'd be at 43. On a bad day, I'd be at like 40. So that was my range, my fluctuation. But as long as I did that test, it never really, it never changed a whole lot. So for what it's worth, um, that that's a window into one element of that raw, pure firing potential. That being said, though, I do I, I wouldn't view that as a limiter on anybody. I wouldn't say if you want to be more explosive that, oh, well, you're only at 39 taps. So you're just I mean, I wasn't even that high and I was able to do some uh, relatively decent things athletically. I didn't run 10 second flat in the 100 meters, but I did high jump seven feet and, and throw the javelin away and, and do, I feel like I took my physiology pretty far uh, with the firing rate that I had. And I found too that within that firing rate, if uh, I'm going to be doing a workout and you can test it even throughout the workout is if it's a workout where there is some more explosive things being done in the gym, a heavy squat or an explosive like a depth jump or a fast sprint or anything that's really bringing it out of your nervous system, that if you do the tap test after doing a few of those exercises, the tap test will almost invariably be better and faster. I've also found that caffeine had a, a positive impact on uh, how fast you could tap the space bar as well. So those were some things that in terms of like getting the maximal amount of juice into the system relative to what you have, uh, those are things that can improve it. I also think on the other side of the coin and what isn't often or as often talked about is finding ways to remove the roadblocks from the nervous system. Charlie Francis talked about this in terms of tempo sprint training. So Sprint tempo, which is a very debated thing, like, hey, go run eight 200s. <laughs> um, 
it actually he would speak about that and the level of it actually being able to decrease the roadblocks in the nervous system being able to flow through the muscles it, it would downregulate the resistance to the nervous system and i do feel like it, you could just call that looseness you feel more loose you feel more free and able to move i think you get the same thing honestly when you play sports i, I think that those roadblocks um, get removed so i think we can look at it on one end as hey what's the well what's your raw setting how wired are you from a raw setting how much can training temporarily help to at least keep you running well or keep that running well? But then also at the same time, how can you downregulate the roadblocks? And the downregulation, I think, is more like those low days in the sense of it's, it can be more repetitive work. I also think things like um, doing like speed rush and lunge jumps uh, for a slightly higher reps even, uh, such as doing one minute worth of speed rush and lunge jumps, that type of stimulus. I also think that I think it also it offers a unique combination in that the explosive component and a, a Russian lunge jump, by the way, there's a lot of ways that you could define a Russian lunge jump. There's like a switching back and forth version. There's a jump straight up and down version in that lunge. A way that I like doing it that I think is pretty common to the tag is to do two or three little bounces in the lunge position and then jump straight up and down. Whatever it is. And, and the one, if you're going to do it for a minute, though, it's with uh, a five second pause. So like hold a lunge for five seconds. And then you will jump up uh, into that Russian lunge and then hit and then pause again for five seconds. That's a very Jay Schrader uh, prescription, I believe. I'm not sure if the Soviets did it that way, but that is a way that I've seen him utilize that method. And if you do that type of thing for a minute or even longer, I think you get the upregulating part of the explosive element. But then there's also the uh, strength endurance element that I think also helps to uh, take away the roadblocks. So anyways, that being said, kind of a long-winded answer, but basically uh, wired athletes, that raw neural ability is relatively fixed to that individual. That's not something that can change like the hypertrophy of the fast twitch volume or things like that, but it's something that you can work with. It's something that you want to manage. Uh, whatever your twitch speed is, you want to manage it the best you can through the excitatory or the explosive training and then also the stuff that can take away or chip away at the roadblocks there. Uh, next question is what differences, and this fits with the isometric question, what differences between the tension release ISO and rhythmic ISO are there? When to use one versus the other? And that was gray matter performance. Trevor Harris, thanks for that question, Trevor. So quick definition. So a tension and oscillating training in general, a great training stimu uh, stimulus. I've had a few posts on this recently, but a tension release OC ISO, and that terminology is from the uh, the OC, I, I believe, is from the greatest sports training book ever. I think Haldits has used that type of terminology as well. So maybe I, maybe I, I think that sometimes definitions can sit in the middle of those sometimes. But as I see it, the tension release ISO is, let's say you're holding an isometric lunge and you have 30-pound dumbbells in your hands. You will hold that in that exercise. You will hold that lunge at the bottom position or close to the bottom, you, not the dead bottom, but close to the bottom you will create as much tension as you can in your legs, specifically the front leg, for a second or two. And then you will release that tension and drop to the bottom. So you're going to totally relax, drop to the bottom, and let your body bounce itself out of the bottom. So that is a tension release ISO or tension release OC ISO. A rhythmic ISO, on the other hand, would be basically like an oscillating rep. I think this is more like the, the if you look at the Caldeats OC reps, 
you would look at an isometric where an athlete is in either the advantageous position or kind of the sticking point, the disadvantageous position. I tend to do them at more the sticking point. So you go to the sticking point of the exercise, let's say it's a squat, and you bounce up and down. So you just bounce up and down in that sticking point a few inches. And you can combine that bounce. You could do three bounces in a full rep. You could bounce for eight to 10 reps uh, just on its own. Uh, either way, it, it offers a similar adaptation. And so what do I believe are the advantages or when would I use one versus the other? I tend to, I think that they both have very similar adaptations and, and abilities within them. I think you're kind of getting a similar thing, but I think the main, uh, and you could use them either way. I, I, I think that it's never, it's never really about um, the exact exercises. It's more the messaging and, and how that exercise plays out. So for example, uh, let me tell you first how I tend to use them in programming is I like to start, uh, especially when I'm in starting blocks, it be at off season or, and I'm first getting started with an athlete, I will start with more rhythmic work. So more oscillating work will be there earlier in a program versus the tension release stuff will come in later. Uh, that's not necessarily because of the, it's not necessarily because of um, the exercise itself. It's more how I use it. So how I would look to use rhythm early is I use rhythm in higher repetition early. I might prescribe uh, even, for example, uh, like a rhythm single leg uh, RDL exercise with a lightweight performed for 30 seconds or 40 seconds or something like that. I'll use even you could say like a Russian lunge jump that's done on a rhythm or a low squat foot jump type exercise that's done to a rhythm. So think uh, squatting, dropping down in 90 degrees and hopping up and down in a rhythmic fashion. Uh, those exercises I like to use early because you can get more reps in. They're not intense yet. I program that stuff early uh, without actually bringing on a lot of weight. I like using a lot of body weight, rhythmic, and oscillating exercises and movements early on in a training program just to help improve. Um, you could say I am down-regulating those neurological roadblocks. It's oftentimes novel and, and it draws attention into the, the session as Paul Cater, Coach Paul Cater, who's been on this podcast, has said, within rhythm, there is a, a tuning, if you will, of muscle and tendon. And I would also put mind in there. It's like this triangle of muscle, tendon, and mind that gets tuned when you do things to a rhythm. And you know, funny enough, too, I would actually even say I've seen like triphasic training or tempo training done to a metronome where it's like five seconds up you know, or five seconds down, explode up, or even you could do five seconds down, five seconds up. I also believe that there's an inherent rhythm in that, even though it's it might not be as fun to some people as, hey, there's some music on and let's do this, this Russian lunge and, and you're going to bounce every time this beat hits or something like that. To me, rhythm, rhythm is rhythm on a base level, but there's different ways you can do it for the, the group in front of you and maybe a university football group. It might be more uh, acceptable to do uh, a metronome and a more uh, accepted type of rep scheme there than, than doing like, a let's do these lunge rhythms uh, with the music that's on in front of you. But it does, it depends on the group and it depends on what they respond to. But long story short is I will tend to use more lower intensity, more longer duration, more body weight oriented rhythmic work early. And that also could certainly include weightlifting type repetitions with a lighter weight. And then I'll gravitate towards if I'm going to get that tension release OC where you have more of a weight on the bar or in your hands or whatever, and you're specifically really intentionally creating max tension and dropping it, I would work towards that. 
But to be completely honest, I think you could start with either. It just depends on how you're progressing it along. I would be happy to. I think you could easily start with tension release early and you could uh, teach athletes that and do it with lighter weights to start and then move up. But I also think that as I see it in the teaching component, I also want to start with things that require the minimal amount of like conscious intervention on my part. I'd like to help athletes or I'd like to create an environment where athletes can find the rhythm on their own without me necessarily having to say right away, hey, you need to contract this muscle as hard as you can, now relax it. I'd like to give them some space to learn the rhythm of the rhythmic isos on their own. And then as we move on, I'll go into more of things that are a little bit more mechanical and intensive in nature. Next question, Kashik asks, back on the, or along with the isometrics theme, what phase of training to use overcoming isometrics? And so for this one, I haven't used, I've used them a little bit, the overcoming isometrics. So such as Alex Natera's sprint specific isos, I don't have a force plate or things that can give athletes feedback. And so my experience, and I've probably actually used them myself a little bit more than with athletes, just because what I've had to do is do a functional isometric. So uh, Christian Thibodeau has talked about this. Where So if you don't have a force plate, what you can do is you can just load a bar up extremely heavily. Uh, let's say I'm going to do, and maybe not even sprint specific, let's just say a rack pull. So let's just say I have a really heavy bar that's around knee height, maybe a little higher than knee height, so like a mid-thigh pull. And I want to maximally pull that bar. Well, if I have force plates that I'm standing on, I can get a number that says just how hard I pulled on that bar. But if I don't have force plates, uh, we know that that actually will lead to, in a typical situation, let's just say I had an athlete and they uh, were under, they put the bar under the half racks or under a set of pins so they could just pull it up as hard as they possibly could. And I just told them to do that. But they didn't have a number. What's going to happen is those athletes, that the strength of that pull is going to be about 10% less without a number than if they can see a number. And that's honestly a really big deal because the, the perception and the goal and the meaning of what you're doing is going to bring in motor units. It's going to bring in strength. It's going to bring in coordination that fits that task. And I think that just that in itself as a principle is really important because when I create a training session, it, again, this is where it's more than the exercises. It's, well, how is the exercise being presented to that individual? So that being said, a functional isometric would be to create, a, uh, to give meaning to the movement versus just saying, well, just pull as hard as you can to give more meaning and motivation to create and elicit more outputs. You could just take up that bar and put it instead of under the pins put it on top of the pins and load as much on it as you possibly can so that you are just barely able to move it. So let's say my the max I could pull would be 500 pounds. Well, I'm going to put 500 pounds on it or around that. And my goal is just to lift that bar off the pins one inch and hold it there. And so, no, I'm not actually pulling it up into anything. But I am overcoming something. There was a goal that I hit. And so if I could do that 500, maybe I would then try to do 505 or 510. But as long as there's just something you're shooting for, some sort of personal best that's on the table, that's what would be ideal there. I'm kind of getting away from the question a little bit because I'm describing more of the mechanism. But I would say that as I've used that uh, with individuals, it's after. And I know Alex Natera with the sprint-specific overcoming ISOs, he's talked about this as you start with general, so you start with more general lifting, and then you work into 
more of that overcoming isometric uh, methodology, which is more intensive. For me, I will follow that. Uh, I will use it though where I where those exercises show up for me. And it is funny because sometimes things go in waves. Um, uh, sometimes it comes down to your setup and how easy is it to set these things up and to load a bunch of plates on the bar or if you have a force plate available. Uh, but I love pairing overcoming isometric type work with it in contrast training or French contrast training. One of my favorite things to do is uh, in a French contrast, you'll do a heavy lift, uh, a longer contact plyometric, then an explosive lift, and then a really quick, short contact, high velocity plyometric. That's the general um, sequence of that. And I really have enjoyed and found really good results with instead of using a lift, a traditional up and down lift, and that can certainly work too, but as that heavy strength motion, doing an overcoming isometric there has been fantastic. And I know Alex has talked as well about uh, using those overcoming isometrics uh, in contrast training. So pairing those with plyometrics and things like that. And I think that's that's where things get fun. Like to me, I, and I think it's fun to do things that you can really generate that power output, that max output like that in it. And especially in more of a specific position. But to me, the the fun is also, in, well, how does that isometric pair with this plyometric? How can we use this stimulus to keep things novel and and interesting and um, keep that flow state over time as well. I think each, uh, both a plyometric and a maximal isometric type exercise, each has its own unique benefit and impact on the nervous system and the structure of an athlete. So for me, it's, it is, it's get a base phase established, a general phase established. And as I mentioned too, there's probably going to be some sort of oscillating body weight, uh, rhythmic type work in that base phase. And then uh, after, as that progresses forward, uh, looking to incorporate some of those more high-tensioning-based activities. Next question, ZKH asks, can a loss of substantial body weight, 10%, allow someone to be more elastic? So, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's um, Being a former high jumper myself, I can tell you that one of the main training variables in high jump, which is one of the most elastic events out there, or elastic things human beings, I think, can do or do, uh, in, in a particular way, at least. Uh, there's, there's a lot of elasticity and a lot of it. You also need a lot of uh, resisting force that's coming out of the foot and ankle. But that being said, the high jump in the high jump event, uh, the more you weigh, it works against you extremely fast. And athletes who are of a higher body weight, even if they're really strong in the weight room, at some point, you just can't overcome the impact forces and how fast the force of the ground is coming back up into the body uh, from that collision uh, of planting your plant leg. And so, long story short is, yeah, losing or, <laughs> or being less weight, even if it's less muscle weight, um, that improves and can improve and facilitate elasticity. Uh, we talk a lot about how elastic children are. And children really are, they are really based, their base functioning is maximizing their uh, their interaction of their fascial and elastic systems with muscle kids don't have a ton of muscle they have to operate as i guess you could say a human being is baseline and uh, meant to operate from an elastic perspective and then we gain more muscle over time and then the way we move and operate actually can change a little bit but i would say that the less muscle mass that we have it, as long as we're still strong and able to function well uh, that demands more elasticity and, and elastic mechanisms and recruitment uh, from our bodies. So, yeah, it's just a pretty, I think that's a pretty 
if you look at that spectrum, if you're more muscular and heavy, you're going to be relying on that muscle a little bit more to move. If you have less muscle mass and you're more lean, uh, then you're going to be relying more on that fascial, those fascial elements in locomotion, in movement, in jumping or whatever it is that you're doing. So pretty simple, uh, pretty simple and straightforward principle with that one. Next question is Bartek. And the question is, uh, nonlinear periodization for max sprint work? If so, how? And so with nonlinear periodization, uh, I think I, with that term, I would look at things like, um, like a three-day rollover or auto-regulation. A uh, three-day rollover was, uh, Dan Paff was the one who I, I think either invented it or, or really popularized it or maybe a combination of both. Uh, anyways, the first time I had ever heard about it was from him, a lecture he did. And in it, he talked about track athletes having three primary workouts. Uh, I believe they were uh, more a uh, one that was more just pure speed, max speed oriented, one that was more speed endurance oriented, and one that was either more uh, strength or acceleration oriented. And athletes would do each of those when they were fully ready to do it in a rotating schedule. So they would basically do one and then they would rest or do maybe do lower level activity until they were ready for the next one. Then they would do the next one. Then, And it was all based on their readiness. And that has a lot of really powerful potential. Dan had shared some athletes who did really well on that. And so it's a thing where it really helps to bring out an athlete's peak abilities. Uh, that is basically auto-regulation. Uh, you also could say uh, auto-regulation being, hey, show up today for your workout and based off of your state of readiness, I'm going to give you this workout that fits uh, directly with that readiness state. Um, I remember hearing about uh, Stu McMillan talking about something like that he did with Dwayne Chambers, where whatever whatever state uh, or readiness level Dwayne was at, that he would get a sprint workout, that the intensity was based off that readiness level. And doing that, Dwayne was able to get to a very high level of performance in not, not a really long amount of time doing that kind of system. So I think that stuff is amazing and it really speaks to, I think, how we're innately, you look like from a nature perspective, uh, how we're meant to operate and adapt. Uh, but at the same time, I look at it from kind of a, everything, even if it's auto-regulation, like everything has a shelf life. Um, at some point, any system will lose its novelty. And so even if an auto-regulating system can really bring out my abilities on a high level and whatever auto-regulating system fits you, uh, be it uh, a daily auto-regulation, maybe it's a three-day rollover when you do the next workout when you're ready for it or something like that. I think that, that that type of system will have a shelf life and then at some point you want to be getting back into more of a structured training system. And I, I'd imagine I've seen it set up like that where I've seen track coaches talk about uh, and I would imagine that uh, within the three-day rollover that its original usage probably goes like this as well where athletes would do more of a structured training leading up to it. So they're, they're doing more of a, hey, you're going to be doing uh, this workout this day, this workout this day in the week. And then once they get maybe in season, that's when the auto-regulation kicks on. Okay, Because in season, there's a lot of intensity. You're going to meets. You obviously need to take the fitness that you've gained and display it and, and allow it to reach its highest level. So uh, for me, I like of thinking. Uh, I like thinking of things as moving from a little bit of more structured to more chaos. And so, in setting up a, a track season, for example, I like the idea of having more structure in more of the the off season and the preseason. And it's when athletes get more of an in season format that more of that auto regulation can really kick on. 
I will say too, is I think that the auto regulation can also change based off of where you are in the season. Uh, I've worked with high level swim coaches who have done something where the in season is auto regulated in the sense of athletes being able to have autonomy and choice as to the intensity of the workout they chose, or basically the sets, reps, yardage, the intent, the type. Is it a more short, explosive workout? Is it a little bit longer, more drawn out workout where athletes are given a choice of that uh, more often in season? And then in the off season, the volume is fixed. Uh, so that the structural adaptations to volume is fixed, but they're given more of a choice over the types of strokes that they get to do. And so I, and I really like that. It's you're all, that way you're always giving uh, a level of choice to an individual, but in the off season when it's like, look, we just, we do just need to get a certain volume of work in. we need to get work in and we need to learn to handle work on some level. And obviously we don't, we never want that to be licensed to get carried away with volume or junk volume. But I do think there's something to be said about having just a structure and a routine throughout every week that you can learn to expect. But within that structure, maybe there's some choices that you get from just an exercise perspective that does give you a little bit more ownership of that process. So that is one way you could do it. And that's the way that I generally, you know, I, I don't think there is a perfect way, but that's a way that resonates with me is moving from more order to a little bit more flowing with chaos once the intensity really gets ratcheted up because you are now in season. But I like that even within an off season, even if you have more structure, you're giving and facilitating choice within that more structured uh, weekly flow of the off season. Next question is Joe Stuce. He asks, to what age can one sustain high level explosive athleticism, assuming one stays active? This is a great question. And I remember when I was in my early 20s, I'd read the literature. It says, all right, about age 26, 27, 28 with the 100-meter dash, that's your peak. And I remember thinking at that point, all right, so basically when I'm 30, I'm done. <laughs> um, and then you'll get athletes, though, and, and you'll look at trends and you'll see people like Kim Collins, uh, the sprinter who I believe at age 39 ran a 999. And when he was 40, I think he came close to cracking 10. Uh, you'll see people like sprinter Su Bing Shan, who in his early 30s ran that equivalent to a 407 40-yard dash en route to his 983 100 meters. You'll see Justin Gatlin, who is running very fast into his mid to late 30s, and you'll, many others. Uh, you're going to see exceptions to that rule, even though there, or if you look at trends, or you could even say, oh, Usain Bolt ran his best at 21. And But to me, I think that that is just an average. And so the interesting part is exploring elements and components of athletes who defy that average, who can uh, reach those higher outputs, who maintain that explosiveness. And, and with it, I believe a fountain of youth uh, into their later years. I've had the good fortune of being able to work with a number of masters track and field athletes who I was just blown away with what they were doing in um, the level of their performance with the age that they have been at. I've also met individuals like Andy Nicholson, who at 5'11 was dunking a basketball into his mid to, I believe, even his late 40s and, and not too far away from it into um, his 50th year. And being around those people, uh, working with those people, I think there, there's a few things that are at play. I think there's, with just holding explosiveness into later years uh, the obvious things i think we would look at would be things like sleep you know not living a crazy lifestyle or working 100 hours a week or anything like that or and managing your stress level well 
uh, think of Kim Collins. I, I don't know what he, uh, what his life, you know, day to day life was like, but I can imagine maybe the Caribbean, the island lifestyle having something to do with having more of a longevity to, uh, to his sprinting. Or even I look at Shelly Ann Fraser Price, who is in her mid thirties and absolutely crushing it. So I, I could, I could see that maybe a more carefree, uh, general just environment, even being in a community, a culture that perhaps doesn't um isn't quite as much of a a hustle culture like i think being in the united states more of a hustle culture where it's it's just a little bit more generally stressful i I think that that can definitely be a factor but there's factors that go even beyond that and i've seen plenty of really successful masters athletes who live in the midst of western culture and i would say even beyond um even beyond some of the basics like make sure you take care of yourself sleep enough um, is attitude and demeanor and personality. A lot of the athletes that I've seen who are really successful, they're, they have a youthfulness to them. There's just a youthfulness to their spirit and their personality. And if you've caught the last few podcasts that I've done with uh, Julian Pinot and Richard Ashevis, is that link between uh, the mind and the body is, is really important. And the fact is, is nothing is in isolation. Nothing is disconnected. I believe that part of that fountain of youth too is also uh, it's play. It's also interacting and playing with um, with others or with uh, younger athletes. Like going and playing pickup basketball with a group of younger individuals. Uh, for me, I'm I'm 39 and I had the opportunity to play a pickup ultimate frisbee. It was like a frisbee with uh, with goals. So you got to throw it in. It was a lot of fun. But just doing that at age 39 with athletes who are in their 20s. There's a fountain of youth to that too. And, and there's something, there's definitely, I think, something to uh, one's, just one's general youthfulness and attitude that can also filter into how your body responds in kind. And, and maybe it's kind of a limiter or, or removing the limiter in a similar way to the muscle where you just, you don't let yourself, um, yes, we want to grow and mature, uh, but in some ways, at least in the athletic sense. It's almost like um, staying, you're not letting yourself, quote unquote, grow up too much by continuing to play and to, and continuing to, um, like, even when I play with my kids, I chase my kids around, like, to almost be a part of that infectious energy, if that makes sense. I think it's really important. So, yes, I, I think within, um, and well, that, okay, so that does lend the question to what age, uh, I'm kind of going around it, but to what age can you sustain success? Uh, it, it just depends on the individual, but I would just like to say, I personally would think that if we could push that to age 27, you know, in the Russian studies at, at for the 100 meter dash, I think we could easily push that into at least the mid to early 30s uh, with the proper training and with the proper environment. And I think that we can hold on to it for longer than we think if we let ourselves stay young. And the last thing I'll say with that too is part of it all, and this has been true, especially with me. I think it might be less true for some other types of individuals. I'm, if you're into the biomechanics thing, I personally am more of a narrow infrasternal angle, a very elastic individual. And so for me to retain my innate explosive qualities, I need to do things that really reflect that. So I've been able to retain more through really prioritizing things like, and especially now um, at 39, I prioritize more than plyometrics, which plyometrics was my go-to in my 20s. And not that I don't do them still, I certainly do. But uh, these days, I much more prioritize just getting into the nuances of sprinting itself and finding new ways to experience that. 
Uh, that's been a really big key player for me. I certainly still lift weights and lift, but I found that for me, it slowed down or it started to really, sp- I should say, speed up my degradation by focusing too much on things that I wasn't great at, which was or naturally attuned to, which was doing a very high volume of powerlifting and bodybuilding type things. A little bit of it is awesome for me, but my main thing uh, really needs to be things that are a little bit more uh, elastic and explosive in nature and and then novelty as well. I think that uh, being able to invent and reinvent training for yourself uh, and some people maybe more than others, I think some people, especially maybe more endurance oriented athletes might be happier with a more consistent um, type routine. But I also think that being able to ex- find ways to experience uh, explosiveness and speed uh, in a new way is helpful. And I think sport can solve that problem in its own way for a lot of people and playing different sports throughout the year and things like that. So, uh, yeah, that is my answer to that one. And, um, yeah, again, one that I am living and, and really enjoy seeing people who are really holding on to their explosiveness as well into their older years. All right. Next question is Philip Vanna. And he asks, is it necessary to be fully recovered for every jump session or is fatigue needed to induce adaptations? This, uh, this is an amazing question. And so thanks for asking it, Phil. Uh, because this question, and this kind of goes with a little bit of the autoregulation type stuff. And I remember the first time I heard about this, the idea of never going into a session fatigued was when I actually got the Science of Jumping book back when I was... Um, probably, I guess, 15 or 16, I got the, I had done air alert and all the high repetition plyometric training programs. And they had helped for a little while. You know, I've got about two or three inches on my jump doing air alert, which is do hundreds of plyometric, um, submaximal plyometric efforts every single day. Uh, and then I, I kind of plateaued out, out of that and didn't gain anymore. And then I read the science of jumping book that said, Hey, do a very intense plyometric workout. And you're going to do that um, once every four days to two weeks and only do it when you're fully recovered. And it also really stressed not trying to, I didn't follow this part of it <laughs> to the T that they had, they had uh, suggested, but it also said not to be testing your vertical all the time um, in between the training sessions. And there's, there's, a, there's a specific nuance to that element of it. Um, and so we'll get into that through here. And so the question would be, should you just train hard and then wait, wait, wait until you're fully recovered and train again? Or should you just power through? And even if you're not good enough, you know, you're not 100%, you're not even 95%, still go and do the training session. So uh, this, I will say the, the thing about or the idea about needing to be fully recovered is something that it can be um, mentally uh, a negative. I'll just put it that way. It can be a negative. Because it's kind of one of those things, and Zach Evanesh mentioned this on the podcast, is the people who need training to be perfect. I need this. Hey, I'm doing a heavy deadlift. I need my song on. And that actually can, I believe, go into, hey, I can't do this training today because my, my readiness isn't high enough. And okay, I will say this, like, you're not going to, you shouldn't do an intense sprinting, uh, jumping, whatever it is, workout if you're in the gutter. Okay, it's just... And this is the thing is you have to be at least close enough to be able to win whatever workout it is that you're doing. So you at least need to be in the ballpark. And I think that this is the thing, if I've learned anything, is that our readiness level can change given the right circumstance. Uh, for example, you might feel sore or not very explosive and then just go start playing basketball 
and you might be surprised with how much more ready your body will feel. I remember the only dunk I ever got um, in a game, an actual high school basketball game, I remember doing in warm-up lines, I wasn't getting up at all. I wasn't jumping high at all. And then uh, it was at the start of the second half, I picked off a pass, an inbound pass from the guard to the shooting guard and took it the full length of the court and dunked it. And I don't even remember it. My mind just went blank. And <laughs> and I, I mean, I got up. I couldn't believe, how, you know, coming off of the rim, I was like, wow, did my body just do that? That's amazing. Um, all that's just to be said that that things can change in a session more than I believe that sometimes we give them credit if it's only a number. If each session is just, all right, here's your readiness number. Oh, you can or can't do this today. Uh, to me, it's, it's just getting close enough. And I'm not saying don't use, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be relatively fresh for, for sessions. I think we should be. I'm not saying we shouldn't design our training to just beat people up. I personally design programs in a way that I try to give each athlete an athlete every day their best shot at the goal of the session. And I try to distribute f- uh, fatigue throughout the week. Um, but all, all I'm saying is this, is I think that the habit, the long-term habit of only training when things are perfect is not a great mentality. So, so I'll just say this is accepting a little bit of imperfection leading into each session and also learning to manage a little bit of imperfection going into each session. And so, uh, this is true for me in my own training practice and then how I work and train athletes is a lot of times, and I'll just talk about training an athlete is a lot of times I will go through, and this would be like an, a one-on-one session for an example, is we'll go through a long warm-up with a lot of different movements and it gives me time to really see where the athlete is on that day, to really see what they're capable of and to really find a way to set them up uh, to win the workout on the day. Uh, now, not all sessions are one-on-one. Uh, a lot of sessions you have a lot of athletes and they might all be in a little bit different places. And so the question is, well, how can we get them, uh, how can we find where they are and find a way for them to win the workout wherever they're at? Uh, So within the jump session too, uh, first let me speak to your uh, question specifically and then I'll I'll expand just a little bit into people who might be working with groups. And so uh, what I would say is find a system in your mind that you just get a chance to win wherever you are. So let's just say let's just say it might be dunking a basketball. You could also say high jump would be a good one too. So I'll, I'll give both examples here. Uh, if it's dunking a basketball, and uh, you might also have like a way of determining how you feel too. Maybe it's a grip test or something like that, or it's just going off feel. But I think that it's important on each day to kind of set yourself up with the, here's the first. This is the first challenge for me today. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm not feeling good going into this training session. I'm just feeling really lousy. Uh, so instead of just trying to set the goal up to a normal 10 feet and work on my, my most difficult dunks, uh, maybe I will put it down six inches. And instead of trying to you know, do a dunk with a high intensity, maybe I will actually set like a slight endurance goal up for myself. Maybe can I do uh, three 180s or 360s uh, with in under 60 seconds or something like that on a lower goal. So now it's something that is in my scope of ability. It's something that is technically a PR for me. It's something that gets into the higher uh, energy systems. So it's starting, something that's starting to bring in some of the more, you could even call them recovery elements of the, the system when you get into the 20 to 40 second bracket. So I can modulate the training uh, based off of, I, I still, I want to still do it. I'm here. I'm going to do it. it. Look, today doesn't have to be perfect, but I'm going to change today 
because this is where I am today. And I've found that when that when we do that, when we can when we can still find a way to win and still find a way to get some reps in and build some capacity or maintain some capacity, a lot of times a couple of days later, you're back. Like you're feeling good again. You're ready to go. And I I think that I just think that's really important because a lot of times in life you don't again, I think training and like high performance training and high performance sprinting and then the the rigors of life are are different things. But I I've enjoyed uh, myself trying to find ways to win each workout and not necessarily say, all right, well, let's just wait till tomorrow. Occasionally, I will. Uh, occasionally, I will. Occasionally, if it's a day where uh, you're too far out of range, hey, let's just take today as a recovery day. Let's do an easy trail run and some easy isometrics and things like that. Focus on breathing. Then we'll come back tomorrow. But that's, that is a little bit more rare than just trying to find a way to win the workout in front of you. And I also find in the process of trying to wait, the process of finding a way to win it, uh, maybe using more creative or different means early on, using games early on or mixing those things in, you can find that your system might recover faster than you think it did in, in many cases. And you might be capable and ready of a few higher outputs. So back to that dunk session, maybe you do a few of those. Uh, hey, I'm going to see how many of these dunks I can get in 30 seconds, 40 seconds at a really low rim and just make it novel in a way you can win. And then after a few of those, guess what? Your body's a little bit more ready. It can jump a little bit higher than you thought it could before. Maybe you co- you walk away from that day. You didn't like strain yourself on trying to do something like that that really tough dunk on the ten foot that you you know that you got frustrated because you couldn't do it. But it, as I see it, it's all about just a sloping up from that starting point. How can I win this battle? Okay, how can I win this one? Okay, how can I win this one? Okay, this is my limit here. I'm good with this. And to me, that's coaching. So that, and that's something that I've, um, that's been a long journey in me getting to that point. And, and I just want to reiterate saying, I'm not like, a, I'm definitely not saying, hey, you know, you're going to go do fly tens today, even though you're feeling terrible and, and you need to hit this time. It's everything can be adjusted so you can win the day. And when you absolutely have to take a day off, you know, and, and I'm not saying like there aren't places and times, I think in a competitive season and, and it's in season and moving more of it towards a, a possible three-day rollover type system and being more uh, facilitating of those days off, especially when you're in season. I think that's when things can definitely turn there more. Uh, for me, in at least mainline training, I've, I've definitely shifted more towards, look, this doesn't have to be perfect. Let's find a way to win the workout today. Let's find a way to do it. Um, I was I was saying you could do a high jump. I feel like if I give my high jump example too, that could, uh, and you could extrapolate that to pretty much anything. Maybe I'll just I'll just say this quickly because we have other questions. But how that could work in a high jump might be, hey, you know, you're not feeling great today. Well, instead of um, the typical, you know, we're going to put the bar pretty high, maybe four inches from your best, and do some jumps there. Hey, let's just put it a foot or under your uh, best, and we'll do a few two minute drills. We're going to do the two minute drill where you. You know, try to get as many jumps in with a walk or a jog back in to actually, in, in, as I'm saying that, maybe I would turn that into like a one minute drill for, for the sake of that. Hey, we're going to do some one minute drills and you're going to get as many jumps on this really low bar as you can in one minute. And then you're going to take three, four minutes rest and then you'll come back and do it again. Maybe we'll put the bar one inch higher the next time, something like that. Or maybe we'll do uh, straddle jumps or a different type of jump in that context of the one minute drill. Um, or maybe we'll just play basketball, you know, maybe we'll just go play basketball and then do a few approaches or something like that and call it a day. You know, you, you just modulate what you're doing on that day to where you're at. And I I think it's as simple as that. You can take that out to pretty much any, any event there. I, I, 
I'll say too, um, even like sprinting, I think there may be jumping ahead a little bit, but I, within the context of sprinting, even too, you could push that too. And I've done this is, Hey, let's make it more of a speed gate golf day. Let's make it where, uh, let's say we have a certain number of sprints and you know what? The first, um, three fly tens, we're just going to play speed gate golf on these. And I want you instead of as fast as you can see how close you can get to that time. Oh, you got close. Like, all right, that's a win today. You won that part of the day. And just even doing something and winning, just attempting a challenge that's explosive, winning it, I believe does give you a little bump on that day. And so just always finding ways to get that bump. That is to me such such an art of coaching. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave that one there. I, I could go into almost a whole show on that because that's been a really long and enjoyable journey for me on, on winning the workout. That's just that that winning the workout is something that again in a world where I think we are so um, you know it's it's very easy to you know all right well what are the sets and reps what are the highest transfer exercises and that stuff is really important but then how can I take this and give the athlete the feeling that they won the workout that they came in here this level and I just gave them a challenge that was just above that level so they could win it they could feel like they won it they had to work hard and 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 they had to use all their abilities to meet that standard and then they got the next level and then they got the next level instead of uh i think the biggest problem actually is when an athlete is low like they're coming in at their 85 percent of their best and you're asking them to do a challenge that's a 95 percent, and the gap is so big it breeds frustration and i think the frustration is actually um a a you know we would just say oh well you're just doing a workout you're too fatigued for this nothing great is happening you're probably more fatigued now I actually think that the mental element of the feeling frustrated, feeling slow, I can't do this. I think that is almost in some ways the worst part of of trying to do a workout that's explosive when you're coming in down. So I think so much of it is just building an athlete up, finding the constraints that the athlete can win. Next question here, check it out, asks uh, internal and external cues to teach acceleration. And so I'm going to keep the answer to this pretty quick. I could very easily get long-winded on this one, but I'll just simply say that I am not nearly as much a fan of cues in teaching acceleration, and especially not internal cues. Uh, external cues are better if we're looking at cues, but I will generally defer to things like constraints. So if we're talking about acceleration as well, in the sense of a three-point start or a block start, um, I, usually that's what we're talking about. And it's interesting to think that, well, athletes accelerate all the time in a differential learning process for sport. And they've been learning that over and over for thousands of reps for years from standing starts. And so a lot of this revolves around while teaching uh, a three-point start or a block start where athletes are going to be a little bit less familiar. And a lot of them haven't had the time to learn and feel that. Uh, what I find is when athletes are accelerating and if they look, they don't look good. So athletes who uh, the coaches would common times are accelerating from, I should say, that three or four point start and they just don't look very good. A lot of coaches might say, well, that athlete accelerates and they really kick their butt as they accelerate. I've, I remember watching a swimmer one time who literally looked like he was falling forward. We had like a fun day in the fall and did some like 10 meter sprints. We just just kind of see who's fast on the land in the early off season. I remember there was a, a swimmer who looked like he was going to fall over almost like the every, like he was the epitome of a push runner, butt kicker type person. But I, I think that that, when we see that, we, we instantly and easily pace that onto, well, that athlete is a butt kicker. Well, when we watch the athlete in sport, if they were just playing 
Um, like if that swimmer was just playing soccer or ultimate frisbee, I don't think he would accelerate like that. In fact, I'm almost 100% positive he would not because we will react to our environment. If our perception is we're in a relatively standing position and we're just chasing the person in front of us, like I've never seen kids play tag and, and or in coaching you soccer and see kids running around the field like like the falling forward butt kicker. I think that type of thing happens. When athletes are in a, a now novel environment, they have nothing, it's nothing but them and the field and the clock <laughs> and they have to run and they don't know what to feel. And so they might just wait and they wait till they feel and reference the ground and their leg really load up and then they push. And so a lot of times it's just changing their environment so they, their body and their brain can work a little bit differently. I've seen drastic changes just by rolling out like an acceleration ladder where you have uh, sticks on the ground. It could be paint sticks that are slowly increasing in length that can help an athlete to experience and feel what an acceleration from a crouch start might feel like. And it helps to take that, that forebrain, that overthinking brain out of it and just react. So uh, I'll just say, I, I think that there's some external cues that I think can be decent. And my external cues really lie more in awareness, such as feel the pressure of your feet on the ground. They're a little bit more open-ended and they can allow for like more or less shin forward translation based off of the individual characteristics of the athlete. But I'll just say, I just, I always will start with a constraint because I want to see how an athlete solves a few different problems in sprint acceleration before I get into, hey, well, you're doing this wrong. Here's a cue for it. I always want to see what you can do when I just change the environment for you. And I want to give the athlete that benefit of the doubt that maybe the reason you're running this way is just because this environment, this just flat ground, um, just run as fast as you can in a linear sprint from a crouch start environment is not stimulating you the way that I think your, um, your instinctual brain needs to be stimulated to run fast. And so, like I said, I think an acceleration ladder, just trying that and seeing how something like that works. Um, and then there's a whole lot of other constraints that you can get into. You can have the acceleration ladder that comes up into little mini hurdles. You can use different variations of sleds and resisted sprints and things like that. And I'm going over this whole topic. Actually, I have an online course that'll be coming out soon on sprint acceleration. So if you're interested in my view on this topic of sports performance, definitely be on the lookout for that course. But in short, uh, again, I will always give athletes the attempt to solve a problem or change their environment before I come in with that um, that cueing level of things because uh, too much cueing, again, as, as I think we all know, can very easily lead to that over-analysis and a lack of pure movement. So I want to give them that option for pure movement first. Next question comes from Dario Saisan. He asks, how do you give athletes variation from intensity well in regards to max velocity? So I'm uh, talking about training max velocity specifically. Uh, I would say that if you run, um, and this kind of goes back to that always finding a way to win a workout type mentality. Uh, I do find if you give athletes a flying 10 type stimulus, a really explosive and a max fly 10 stimulus uh, for a lot of weeks in a row, they will eventually start to stagnate on that stimulus. So they're eventually going to reach that point where they're not improving nearly as fast or the results are going to start going up and down a little bit. And that's a normal part of training. You put something in the system, athletes will eventually adapt to it and progress becomes slower. Uh, I always, again, I want to look at how do we go into the workout being able to win the workout. And so when I look at programming max velocity, I also have to look at, well, what's the purpose of this? 
Uh, if you look at Nick DeMarco in the recent podcast that we did, he was talking about within the scope of American football, really prioritizing acceleration speed. But for him, max velocity was more a stimulus done for the sake of uh, tissues and injury prevention more so than, hey, we really got to get you this much faster in the fly 10 because that makes, actually, he said that that really uh, compared to acceleration, he said that max velocity wasn't as much of a difference maker uh, for those athletes. So with that in mind, I'm I'm thinking more, I'm speaking more to this on the sense of just pure performance training, pure outputs, maybe more track and field. And so for me, I'll look at, look, I'll look at how long am I going to be running this stimulus. So let's say it's eight weeks and then we're going to be getting in season and track and we're going to be doing, we have meets now. And so that kind of takes care of some of that max velocity stimulus already. Or it's a thought on the seasonality of training in general. If you sprint fly tens all year, every week, it will become stale. It will become routine. It will become on some level, just checking a box and just hoping you run faster the next week. And I always really enjoy for training to have that alive, like this is, there's something, maybe it's something I've done before, but at least in the lead up to that or the way it's presented, there is this this novelty, this newness, this excitement to it. And so whether it's um, whether it's a short cycle or a long cycle, I like to think about, well, how, how many touches of this am I going to get until the next training block? So, well, let's just say we're doing eight weeks of training and we're going to be doing some max velocity, some flying tens. What I'm probably going to do in that eight weeks is I'm only going to touch a fly 10 test once every two or three weeks. And so I'm going to do that. So when we do touch that test, it's almost a guarantee, hopefully, that you set um, at least a training personal best. And so what will we do the other weeks? Well, we can just do different variations of the fly. Maybe we do sprint, float, sprint type movements that day. Maybe we do some different like horizontal plyometrics. Maybe we do some flex leg bounding for speed. Maybe we do a single leg uh, flying 10 where you're doing a single leg hopping as fast as you can through the gates and then some other type of sprinting derivative. Maybe it's a racing type derivative without the clock, without the stress of the clock. So for me, it's mostly rotating, looking and rotating around stimuli and finding the key points where I do want to put the timer on you and actually get the time. I also do think within the context of that, I, I like uh, what Randy Huntington had talked about with the max velocity and fly tens on not actually going 100% for a PR every single time, but setting it at, you're going to do these flies and it's going to be at this percentage and it's going to be for this period of time. And I think that ultimately to me, the thing is, and just how I'll address this, it's just feeling like you're winning the workout. For me, I'm sure if I was one of Randy's athletes and if he assigned those fly tens at that velocity and I did it, I won the workout, you know, um, 100%. So I think it just depends on your coaching situation and what you're looking. I think it's even your own coaching personality and how you how you respond, What what is exciting um, with training to you and how can I convey this to my athletes. So I think there's different ways that we convey can convey winning the workout and keeping things exciting like that. Um, So that's more of my way of doing it is mixing up the stimuli and we're running things on a 14 day cycle where maybe we only hit that fly 10 once every two weeks or a 21 day cycle. Um, You also can play with the distances a little bit. You could do a fly 30 and maybe uh, week one is fly 30 and it's a little sub maximal. Maybe week two is go a fly 10 and you can ramp up. So the very last fly 10 is let's go for that fastest run. And then the next week, week three, you could go back to that submax fly 30. Maybe it's a speed gate golf fly 30 for some of it. Uh, maybe some of it's a particular intensity. Then the next week, you're going again for that fly 10. When you do things that way, 
Now, again, everything is variable based off your timeframes, but when you do things that way, you will delay that, that, um, that plateau a little bit longer. The question also comes in, and I, I won't get into this too much on this Q&A, but is it better to delay that plateau and keep athletes away from the plateau for longer or try to ramp up to that plateau real quick and then change the stimulus? That would be the bonder chuck. Um, Derek Evely had talked about that on this podcast with, well, hey, the more developmental cycles we can run through in the year, that's, that's really good. Like, so basically hit the plateau, change the stimulus, hit the plateau. And I think within the context of, of throwing, you can throw a different implement. You can throw a different weight. You know, if you wanted to do that with fly tens and you wanted to somehow frame that fly differently, it's, it works, I think, a little differently in sprinting versus other things. But as I said, there's a lot of ways to do this. There's a lot of ways to go into this from that psychological and training adaptation perspective. But I would say the key through all of it is just that you have a philosophy behind it. You have a plan. You have an idea of where you're going. And you also know how to adjust things on the day to help that athlete win the workout as and uh, if needed. So those are just a few ideas uh, to keep that fresh. And uh, I would just say, do that what feels, uh, have the plan, and then do what reflects your strengths and abilities as a coach, as well as the group in front of you. All right, next question. Ben McGuire asks, delays for, or drills, (laughs) delays, drills for delayed knee extension out of the blocks, but a focus on projecting the hips. This is such a good question because um, these are both important things. We do want to have a delayed knee extension in sprint acceleration because if we're really extending knees early, we're not leveraging the glute. We're not maintaining good angles in acceleration. We're probably not going to be able to keep our center of mass low. And so the delayed extent, uh, knee extension, these are things why doing a squatted run is a really great uh, training constraint or drill for developing the qualities of sprint acceleration. Even training with a sled is going to drop you down lower and put you in a position where you can also leverage delayed knee extension well. But in that, let's say squatty run, for example, or one of my favorites, and Darian Barr taught me the squatty run. Jeff Hauser been on the show talking about Groucho runs, that self-limiting ability of those uh, movements is is awesome. Uh, Darian Barr had one called the bucket run where you actually put, you can put a box or a bucket on your butt. You kind of sit, squat down and you put that box on your rear end and you run. It doesn't look like a whole lot of a run, but it is a constraint that will not let you uh, extend your knees or, or extend your knees early. And what you can do is you can run with that box or bucket on your rear. And then after like five yards, you can just throw it, throw it off and you can go sprint. So those are, those are great methods for delayed knee extension. But as you mentioned, this is why this is a great question is how do you marry, how do you integrate projecting the hips forward, which to accelerate fast, you need to project the hips forward. If all you focus on is delayed knee extension, maybe you get awesome glutes and you get that, you get that real hip, hip power drive, low center mass, but at some point you have to go forward. So a couple things here. Uh, one is I do like, and now this doesn't fit with the start so much, but this is a, this is a, you could call it a constraint, a sensory drill, a self-learning drill, but basically do a squatty run for a few meters, maybe it's five, 10 meters, and then integrate that, take that into a sprint. So at 10 meters, you switch from a squatty run to being able to go ahead and project your hips as far as you naturally feel on each step. But that doesn't help uh, as much from the very start. And so I will say this as well, is if you watch most starts, if you watch athletes in practice starting, they usually project their hips really far out. They might hit straighter post lines because that's what their coach is trying to get them to do. But when they're actually in the race, 
their first step is a lot shorter because that instinct is kicking on and I'm going to do what I need to run as fast as I can and win this race, not the position that my coach wanted. And so all that being said, though, is, well, how can we focus on that shin drop or delayed knee extension uh, coming out of the blocks initially, but yes, still projecting forward. And so one thing that comes to mind that, so I mentioned Jeff Hauser and he had trained or he had trained the fastest uh, high school 40 athlete of all time. I think it was like a 428 this athlete ran. And if you check the podcast that Jeff Hauser did, he talks about some nuts and bolts of working with that athlete and teaching um, team sport athletes who are kind of frequency freaks, as he calls them, the patience of a linear sprint. Uh, but one a drill that he had done that I thought was really intriguing that I think has good value with this is that can uh, capture those two things you're looking for is a kneeling start off of a low box. So I think the box is like, um, I don't know exactly, but around a six inch box. So you're kneeling on a six inch box that's long enough for you to kneel on it. And if you've seen the kneeling start where you're just kneeling on the ground in a half, a half kneeling position or a half lunge, and you start out of that position, it's basically like that, but you're coming down off the box. And what's great about that is it gives you the feeling of the fall. It gives you the feeling of working with gravity and the shin drop coming off of that box, that fall coming off of that box uh, is going to help you project out. You're going to reflexively project outwards. And Jeff would also uh, try to capture or create grounds for that uh, projection. He would have little mini hurdles lined up. So you'd be dropping off the box and then you'd have to get over a short acceleration ladder afterwards. So that acceleration ladder also is going to force some level uh, or add some level of projection or outward forward projection into the mix. But uh, with the delayed knee extension, though, that kneeling start off of the box, if you extend your knee early and you're on this box, you're going to go really far up and then you're going to come down. It, It wouldn't work at all, basically. So it is with the nature of it, the half kneeling start off the box is going to play to a lot of qualities that you're looking for, being able to delay that knee extension and then also be able to project the hips forward. I did that episode as well with Jeff. It was about 317, so around 30 shows ago. The show notes are in there in that episode if you want to actually take a look at the video of that exercise. So we'll cover two more questions here. The next one is GMH Performance, and he asks, what are three training books you think we should read that are often left out of typical answers? And so here, I'll just give three that have been really helpful, interesting, uh, illuminating for me. I think for each person, it's going to be a little bit different, but each of those th- uh, these three books I'll list have offered uh, a really unique element that has helped me to see training in a really important light that I, I wouldn't see just in reading the typical uh, strength and performance literature. And there's there's so much good stuff in the literature. I was even looking back into some works in like the 90s, like the special, or it might have been early 2000s, the special strength manual for coaches by Verkashansky. There's so much good stuff in there. Like we don't talk about that book that often. That's, that's a book more uh, from the I would say more of the the programming side of things, the science side of things. All that stuff is awesome. And I would highly recommend something like this um, special strength manual for coaches. But the three I'm going to mention here are The Spiritual Journey of Joseph Greenstein, which is the story of the mighty Adam, the strong man, uh, How We Learn to Move by Rob Gray, and then the works of uh, Giles Cometti. So just quickly highlighting these, uh, I talked about this a little bit with uh, Zach Evanesh. I may have mentioned it on another podcast or two, but the story of the mighty Adam, uh, who was compared to the other strong men of the back in the strong man era, 
uh, I think he was, his name was Joseph um, Greenstein. He was like five feet, four inches tall. And this guy could do feats with short metal bars, horseshoes, nails that no one else could do, or a lot of, in a lot of cases could even touch. Like this guy could bite through nails. <laughs> um, yeah, could just bend horseshoes in half and do all sorts of really incredible uh, feats. And the thing is, the book isn't so much about his training methods, so much as about who he was. And if you look at, I guess you could say story, myth, there's something that's communicated that is beyond sets and reps. And that's kind of what I'm trying to go for with these these three books is I think that understanding the sets and reps and protocols is really important. Uh, but I also think that we need to, on the flip side, read things that tell more of the story of strength. And to me, I can't really think of a book that encapsulates the story of strength more than Joseph Greenstein's bio. And a lot of the book talks about, uh, I mean, it's his life, it's his uh, immigration from Poland to the United States, it's everything he went through. He had 10 kids, he was an entrepreneur, he was trying to sell a healthy and promote a healthy lifestyle through the Depression. It's a story of supporting his family and and all these, and dealing with, um, he was Jewish as well, and dealing with uh, racism and uh, some of the things that were going on in the World War II and whatnot. I mean, this guy's this guy's story was unbelievable. And so it's, it's a, it is a story. It is a life of, of strength. I think we, we think, oh, strength is, you know, squatting this weight or benching this weight, or even you could say doing something explosive and we're sprinting and we're expressing strength that way. I think to zoom out and say, oh, this is a life of strength. That was Joseph's story. And so it's a, it's kind of a rare book. Um, I think it's a little bit more spendy to get, but also within it, it does give you a picture of this guy's mental strategy and his inner game, so to speak, with bending these bars. And it wasn't so much a, it wasn't like a periodized training program. It was how he interacted with the implement to be able to bend it or, or whatever his strongman feat was. So if you get a chance, it's an amazing book. It's, it's something that kind of is, it's the story. It's more than the how-to, it is the story. So next book is How We Learn to Move by Rob Gray. Every year I become more and more fascinated and interested in how do human beings learn skills? And maybe part of that is having children and watching them grow up and learn various skills. And I just think that no matter where you are on that sports performance spectrum, if you're a sport coach, even if you're in the strength and conditioning end of things, I think still having an utter appreciation for how human beings learn and develop in their sports skills is really important. And I, I see motor learning as a bridge, uh, regardless of where exactly you are in the field of sport, as a mutual language of understanding how athletes grow and learn and develop. And so I absolutely love that book. Uh, the final one I'll say, and this is maybe a little bit more on the programming, but a creative programming aspect of things is anything with the works of Giles Cometti. It was his work that inspired it's my understanding that he actually did not have the exact french contrast protocol that's something that uh was later uh, taken or an idea taken that was eventually developed from his work uh, by cal Dietz. but if you look at giles's work it is just creative artistry in coaching and so oftentimes i think we we look to social media for creativity but what you can convey in one exercise or a few seconds i think is not what you can see when you read a whole book on, hey, let's let's mix this stimulus and this stimulus and this stimulus at this point. And we can also do this one and this one and this one. And here's all the possibilities. And you're seeing this all on one page. 
Cometti was also someone who used music. He did things to music and rhythm. This was happening in the 80s and 90s. And it's just cool to step back in time and see this creativity in action in light of the ultimate output sport, which is track and field. So uh, those will be my three books that I think, you know, if you get a chance to check out any one of those, I think you'll be, um, you'll be really happy with having spent the time to go through one uh, or any of those. All right. So last question here is mental prep or race execution for track athletes. And so I am, this is the final question here. And I, I, I tend to spend a lot of time on some of the ones in the middle here. So I'm just going to go with that. I'm a huge believer in visualization I'm a huge believer in even like self uh, hypnosis where or hypnosis tracks like you could even say just honestly just listening to visualization tracks to me it's all kind of the same thing or mindfulness just getting into a state where you can get in control of your breath you can get into more of that alpha state brainwave or even maybe theta state if you can get down far enough and just influence your subconscious mind to really feed that goal and that vision without that constant, busy, buzzing mind. I think that's really important. But what I really want to just highlight here is I become more and more a believer of process goals uh, the further along I get in coaching and in my own athletic journey. Uh, Tony Holler talked about that the last time he was on the podcast. Uh, he had talked about, I believe his phrase was, burn your goals. <laughs> and uh, I, what, I, what I do like about that is the idea, I've seen athletes who, and I myself, am very hard on myself. I set very high standards I've seen goal setting sessions where athletes just throw out goals that are just like insanely high. And I, as they'll say, I'm like, you're, this is probably very, uh, being me being a curmudgeon, but I'd be like, oh, there's no way they're ever going to get that. But I, that's where I think that the, the, you look at it and like, well, what happens if and when that athlete doesn't achieve that goal? Well, it's just like not winning a workout. It's a negative, it's a little bit of a negative uh, cycle or hit. And so that just being said is I do like to uh, focus on process goals. So I have seen the visualization work extremely well. I've seen a swimmer who improved dramatically as a postgraduate who really loved hypnosis and visualization and used those tracks and would listen to those tracks. And he had a race where he had literally visualized it to, I think, like the 10th on the splits. And he ended up swimming one of the best breaststroke times in the nation in the 100-meter breaststroke. And this is a guy who totally blew away any goals anyone would ever have for him. For him, it worked incredibly well. Uh, and I think that, you know, it, that's where the art of coaching and understanding which goals and which process is better for which athlete is really helpful. But I really do like relying um, very heavily as well on process goals. Like if it's, you know, swimming, it's like, well, how, how did the water feel? What did it smell like? What is this? Using more things that make the experience just vivid and even beautiful and fun and exciting and working that into your visualization process. Because I think that if we put so much pressure on ourselves, it can, it, it, there can be that critical point there where it's not fun anymore. And I look and it's not exciting and I'm not grateful to be here. And this isn't the, the amazing and um, just, just fun, overall enjoyable experience that it could be. And so just for me, I, I'm a huge believer in the visualization and those types of methods. Uh, I know Logan Christopher has been on the show who's talked about that. I, I use a lot of his tracks in my work. Uh, but I also have become more and more a proponent of also getting into the process goals on a high level. And also, I would say to infuse some of those process goals into your pre-meet visualization strategy. And I think how much of each leaning towards outcome or process could be individual towards uh, different athletes. But 
I think that that, that's where I would get started is looking at the base is the process and then finding the appropriate outcome goals for the individual uh, with that uh, mental prep uh, and execution for athletes in the scope of track and field. But really, you could apply that to any sport. So thank you so much, everybody, for sending these questions. I really enjoy putting these together. I love seeing what you guys have on your minds. And uh, it was really great to be able to do this. So thank you again. And we'll see you all next week.